Chapter 14, Part 2 Fighting to the Elections August to December 2004 Of The U.S. Army in the Iraq War, Volume 1 By U.S. Army Operation Iraqi Freedom Study Group This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Adam Cable Chapter 14, Part 2 Fighting to the Elections August to December 2004 the Fall of Mosul As the assault on Fallujah proceeded, the coalition was unexpectedly spared the worldwide attention that had undermined the April 2004 operation. The sudden death of Palestinian leader Yasser Arafat on November 11th dominated the Arabic-language airwaves and distracted the Arab world and much of the international media from the events in Fallujah. Perceiving that the coalition had been given a window of opportunity in information operations, Casey pressed Sattler to take advantage by accelerating the operation, telling the MNFW commander, quote, We've got to get this over before they put Yasser in the ground. End quote. Despite the relative dearth of international attention, however, the battle in Fallujah was sending shockwaves through Iraq and, as it had done in April, spilling over into fighting elsewhere. In Haditha, soon after RCT-7 had left its area of operations, insurgents seized control and executed the town's police force on a local soccer field, sending a warning to tribes in Anbar that cooperating with U.S. troops was cause for severe punishment. The most significant spillover was hundreds of kilometers away in Nineveh province. On November 10th, fewer than 48 hours after U.S. troops began their assault on Fallujah, Fighters from Abu Musab al-Zarqawi's organization and other Sunni insurgent groups mounted a coordinated attack on Mosul, taking advantage of the coalition's economy of force posture there. The attack led to the shocking collapse of Mosul's government security forces within 24 hours. Though the fall of Mosul happened quickly, it had been months in the making. In the time since Brigadier General Carter F. Ham's Task Force Olympia had replaced then-Major General David H. Petraeus's much larger 101st Airborne Division in early 2004, Sunni insurgents had realized that Nineveh province was an economy of force area for the coalition and had begun to flow on the path of least resistance toward Mosul. Facing insurgent threats, Nineveh's police forces became reluctant to investigate the insurgent activity. Mosul University, to which the United States had contributed $3 million, fell under the control of fundamentalist Sunnis who imposed gender segregation and banned coalition force visits. Intimidation hollowed out Iraqi army units, with one Iraqi National Guard battalion experiencing 100% turnover in two months due to soldiers being absent without leave, and another battalion losing its commander when he resigned under threat. By midsummer 2004, Zarqawi's fighters, Ansar al-Islam, and other insurgent groups had taken control of the strategic city of Tel Afar, about 80 kilometers west of Mosul astride the main highway to Syria. As Tel Afar became a staging base for foreign fighters entering from Syria, Task Force Olympia had mounted an operation to retake the city of 200,000 people. In September 2004's Operation Black Typhoon, the 3rd Brigade 2nd Infantry Division, Stryker, cleared Tel Afar in a difficult battle resembling the April 2004 operation in Fallujah. The intense fighting resulted in 102 insurgent deaths, the destruction of a portion of the city, and the exodus of almost half of the population. The level of destruction stoked international and local discontent, 
with the Turkish government accusing U.S. forces of killing 58 Turkoman civilians during the operation. Despite the operation's costs, once it had ended, the thinly-stretched U.S. brigade had withdrawn from the city to a base 10 kilometers away, allowing Zarqawi's jihadists and other insurgents to re-establish themselves. By mid-October, Ham recognized that his command was in grave danger. On October 18th, he sent an urgent warning to Metz, the MNCI commander, that Mosul could fall to insurgents at any moment if the coalition did not take immediate action. However, with all available forces committed to Fallujah, including CENTCOM's theater reserve, Metz had no troops to provide. On October 29th, Ham again signaled his concerns, this time briefing Casey that, quote, the point of collapse is very near. Mosul, the leading city in the north, is in jeopardy of being lost to anti-Iraqi forces control due to neglect by the Iraqi interim government. End quote. Thus, the Sunni insurgents' assault on Mosul on November 10th had been neither a hasty target of opportunity nor entirely unexpected. As al-Fajr's lengthy shaping operations unfolded and coalition troops massed around Fallujah, Zarqawi and other insurgent commanders had exploited the light coalition footprint in Mosul to deliver a counterpunch and relieve pressure from their fellow insurgents in Fallujah. Interrogations later revealed that the insurgents had decided to focus on Mosul out of a belief that, quote, they couldn't stop things in Baghdad or disrupt the election significantly because there were seven or eight brigades in Baghdad, but there was only one brigade up north, end quote. On November 10th, the Sunni insurgents quickly overran much of Mosul and recaptured Tel Afar, ransacking and burning government buildings and seizing five of Mosul's Tigris River bridges. Mosul's security forces, which the coalition had been training for nearly a year, disintegrated as insurgents moved from one police station to the next, demanding the surrender of the police at each station and seizing their weapons and equipment. After only two days of fighting, an active insurgent force of 400 to 500 with a support base of 2,000 to 2,500 had driven 80% of the city's 4,000 police officers from their posts, leaving about 35 stations unmanned or destroyed. Following reports that some of the police officers had supported the insurgents' assault, the Iraqi government fired Mosul's police chief, Brigadier General Mohammed Barhawi. Ham later recalled, quote, We did, in fact, lose control. End quote. The fall of Mosul forced MNCI to scramble to turn back the insurgent counterattack. Responding with operational-level maneuver again to reposition his scarce resources, Metz directed his corps reserve, the 1st Battalion 5th Infantry Regiment, Stryker, to leave the cordon around Fallujah and return to Mosul, from which it had come just days before, within 72 hours. After this move, however, MNCI did not reconstitute its corps reserve because there was not an uncommitted maneuver unit in the entire theater. With no other coalition units immediately available, commanders instead committed two of the Iraqi Interior Ministry's Special Police Commando Battalions, paramilitary units with a mission similar to that of the Italian Carabinieri. The battle to retake Mosul would last nearly a week. Given the initial confusion, the two U.S. battalions in Mosul, 1st Battalion 24th Infantry Regiment and 3rd Battalion 21st Infantry Regiment, first had to determine which police stations had fallen and which were still held by the Iraqi security forces. By November 13th, 
the two units had gained a better understanding of the insurgent situation and began conducting battalion-level clearing operations, with 1st Battalion in West Mosul and 3rd Battalion in East Mosul, as the commandos helped recapture police stations throughout the city. Equipped as light infantry, the Iraqi police commandos rode into battle in unarmored pickup trucks provided by MNSTCI and quickly ran into trouble in West Mosul. On their way to rescue Iraqi police trapped in the 4 West Police Station on November 14th, a quick reaction force of Iraqi commandos and their U.S. advisor, Colonel James H. Kaufman, were encircled and almost overrun. Nearly out of ammunition and surrounded by 60 wounded and dead Iraqi commandos, Kaufman rallied the Iraqis to beat back several attacks until U.S. strikers arrived, actions for which Kaufman would receive the Distinguished Service Cross. Four Americans died during the battles to clear the city, compared to 71 insurgents confirmed killed. While insurgents no longer controlled the terrain outright, intermittent fighting would continue in Mosul through the end of December 2004. The Mara's Dining Facility Bombing and the Combat Outpost Tampa Attack To restore sufficient order in Mosul to allow the January 2005 elections to proceed there, MNCI committed three additional infantry battalions to MNBNW, one each from the 82nd Airborne Division, the 25th Infantry Division, and the Oregon National Guard. After the elections, the units would return to their parent brigade combat teams and render Nineveh province an economy of force once again. Recognizing that this force would not be a long-term solution to the challenges of Mosul, Casey requested additional special operations forces for Nineveh province. To meet Casey's request, the Special Operations Task Force in Iraq grew in size, with the new elements going directly to Mosul. There, they established a collaborative relationship with the conventional force leaders in MNBNW, as had been done in MNFW. However, the clearing of the city and the arrival of the reinforcing troops did not render the Sunni insurgents of Mosul impotent. On December 21st, an Ansar al-Sunnah suicide bomber wearing an Iraqi military uniform blew himself up in the dining facility at forward operating base Marez, the largest coalition base in Mosul. The bombing killed 21, including 14 American soldiers, and wounded 75, making it the most deadly single attack on U.S. troops since the invasion. The following week brought another large insurgent attack. In the wake of the Iraqi security forces' collapse in Mosul, 1st Battalion, 24th Infantry Commander Lieutenant Colonel Eric Kurilla decided to reverse course on MNFI's directives to consolidate forces and instead established platoon-sized combat outposts throughout West Mosul. Regaining footholds in the insurgent-dominated territory was not easy. The battalion fought multiple battles during December, culminating in a December 29th assault on combat outpost Tampa, in which a suicide bomber rammed a dump truck filled with artillery shells into the base entry point, followed by an assault force of at least 50 insurgents. The outpost's relief force was ambushed, but after the arrival of close air support and additional forces, the American troops beat back the attack. During the fighting, the battalion suffered one soldier killed and 20 wounded. Kurilla's men would be awarded three silver stars and 11 bronze stars for valor. After the December 2004 fighting, insurgent strength in Mosul waned considerably, leaving the insurgency incapable of complex attacks within the city limits for most of the following year. Nevertheless, the Marez bombing in particular had lasting consequences. 
that the Mara's attacker penetrated U.S. facilities in the guise of an Iraqi soldier had the undoubtedly intended effect of driving a wedge between American troops and their Iraqi security forces counterparts in Mosul. As one officer in the 1st Brigade 25th Infantry Division, Stryker, described it, the attack, quote, caused many U.S. soldiers to distrust the ISF and by default become less interested in training them, escorting them around the battlefield, and integrating them into their mission planning. End quote. This newfound mistrust led to less interaction between the Iraqi security forces and coalition units, which in turn began a downward spiral for some of Mosul's Iraqi units. Quote, On the flip side, the same officer continued, the 11th IRA, or Iraqi Regular Army Battalion, soldiers felt this distrust from their U.S. counterparts, felt the reality of fanatical violence hit extremely close to home, and they began to debate whether or not they were truly dedicated to the cause for which they were fighting and dying. Many IRA soldiers departed on leave and never returned. Many simply deserted under the cover of darkness. By the second week of January 2005, the 11th IRA had only two officers and 21 soldiers remaining. End quote. The aftereffects of the highly publicized Mara's bombing were felt throughout the country. The attack led local coalition commanders in many places to restrict Iraqis' access to coalition facilities, including some that had previously been shared. As a result, Iraqi security forces members on many shared bases were no longer allowed to eat in the same dining facilities as their coalition counterparts, and units in many areas found themselves unable to adhere to the old adage that good military advisors must be willing to eat, sleep, and fight alongside the soldiers they are advising. Sunset of Al-Fajr Back in Fallujah, the elimination of Iraq's worst insurgent safe haven had come at a relatively high cost for U.S. troops, with 57 Marines and six soldiers killed and more than 600 American troops wounded. The original estimate of insurgent strength had been relatively accurate, as MNFI detained 2,052 insurgents during the battle and killed an estimated 2,175. As a testament to the intensity of the fighting, the November Battle of Fallujah by itself accounted for a quarter of all insurgents killed by coalition forces in 2004. Information gleaned from captured insurgents yielded surprising insights into the insurgency in Anbar. Contrary to coalition officials' expectations, nearly 60% of the detainees were married, and a similar percentage had former military experience. Most were young, with 62% under the age of 30. Also, surprisingly, only 7% claimed to be unemployed, meaning that economic dislocation was not a prime motivator. One-third of those captured were from Ramadi, one-quarter from Fallujah itself, and only 6% from Baghdad. These characteristics painted a picture of disaffected Sunnis who supported the insurgency part-time, principally for political, ideological, or religious reasons, and only secondarily as a way to supplement their incomes and support their families. In essence, the data reconfirmed MNFI's firmly held belief that they had a, quote, Sunni problem, end quote. At Al-Fajr's end, the coalition found itself in possession of a city full of rubble. The level of insurgent resistance throughout the operation meant there was significantly more collateral damage in Fallujah than had been the case in Najaf or Samarra. 
The assaulting coalition troops had used 386 close air support strikes and more than 14,000 indirect fire rounds against targets around the city. More than 60 of the town's 200 mosques and 20% of its residences were destroyed, with many more homes damaged. Four months after the operation, only 30% of the city's population had returned. As coalition and Iraqi troops searched buildings and neighborhoods in the battle's aftermath, the stunning degree to which Fallujah had become an insurgent sanctuary became clear. In addition to insurgent fighting positions and bunkers, U.S. troops found 568 large weapons caches, 24 bomb factories, and 13 command and control nodes spread throughout the city. They also discovered torture chambers and sophisticated audiovisual production facilities used to create insurgent propaganda. Insurgents had used 47 mosques as fighting positions, and, though this action invalidated the mosque's protected status under the laws of warfare, jihadist propaganda had highlighted mosque damage in inflammatory media releases picked up by some regional media outlets. The Battle of Fallujah had a significant impact on the insurgency's leadership. During the fighting, coalition troops killed Omar Hadid, Zarqawi's operations chief and rival, who had remained behind in Fallujah to lead the fight. Hadid's death eliminated Zarqawi's only native Iraqi competitor for the leadership of Tawid al-Jihad, and Zarqawi chose to assume Hadid's duties personally to cement his control over the organization. With many other Sunni insurgent groups weakened decisively by their losses in Fallujah, Zarqawi and Tawid al-Jihad moved to the forefront of the Sunni resistance, a position they would not cede for the remainder of the war. Those insurgents who survived the battle and managed to slip through the cordon around the city resettled in areas where they perceived the coalition was weak, including Ramadi, the Triangle of Death in northern Babil, Haditha, and Al-Qa'im, and other border areas. With the influx of fighters from Fallujah, Haditha deteriorated so quickly that by early 2005, insurgents had set up a camp to recruit and train replacements for fighters killed in Al-Fajr. Despite Fallujah's year-long history as key insurgent terrain, coalition leaders did not leave a large footprint of U.S. forces in the city to take part in holding and reconstructing it. Almost as quickly as additional combat power had surged in for Al-Fajr, it surged back out. All of 2nd Brigade 1st Cavalry Division departed Fallujah less than one month after the operation concluded, while RCT-7, which had left vast tracts of western Anbar uncovered for the battle, returned to its original battle space. The quick reduction of U.S. combat power led some of the remaining tactical leaders in Fallujah to fear that the coalition's gains in the city might be short-lived. Lieutenant Colonel Jeffrey R. Chassani, RZT-1's operations officer, encapsulated this concern when he wrote to his commander, Colonel Michael Shupp, that it was premature to think the insurgency in Fallujah had been destroyed. Quote, Why would higher headquarters want to create a vacuum like this after successfully crushing an insurgency that has been a thorn for more than a year? I understand there are other fish to fry in Iraq, that we are not the only show. What I do not understand is why higher headquarters would not want to ensure there was some semblance of stability in Fallujah before they walked away from Fallujah. They are going to walk away thinking they did their part, and the smoldering heap of rubble that is Fallujah is going to start sparking again, because higher headquarters failed to follow through with the resources we needed to smother the embers. Then, they are going to ask us why we let the embers become a fire again. End quote. 
The drawdown of combat power in the city, Chassani concluded, amounted to, quote, snatching defeat from the jaws of victory, end quote. However, with just 18 U.S. combat brigades in the country and plans to downgrade the number to 13 by March 2005, MNCI had few good options. Massing two additional brigades' worth of combat power in Fallujah had already incurred significant operational risk by exposing other areas to insurgent counterattack, as the fall of Mosul had illustrated. Chassani was right, and the situation in eastern Anbar would see another deterioration in 2005 to 2006 that would eventually require additional clearing operations. But being right mattered little in the absence of sufficient troops. Lessons from the Insurgent Sanctuary Cities For coalition commanders, the planned operations in Najaf, Samara, and Fallujah, and the unexpected one in Mosul, yielded a number of lessons, both good and bad. After an initial year of tension between special operators and conventional units over uncoordinated special operations raids and territorial responsibility, Operation Al-Fajr brought a significant advance in collaboration between the two. Special operations commanders attached liaison officers to conventional units and began weekly synchronization meetings with conventional commanders. Discarding past practices, special operations commanders decided that maintaining the trust of conventional battle space owners was more important than the results of any single special operations force or SOF mission, and for the first time, SOF commanders began to forego missions based on battle space owner preference. The relationship between SOF and conventional forces was far from perfect, but it had begun moving toward the highly efficient working relationships that would prevail later in the war and in Afghanistan. In tactical terms, Fallujah had also shown the value of armor and mechanized forces in urban combat. The Marine infantry units assaulting Fallujah had benefited from the support of the tanks and Bradley fighting vehicles in the accompanying Army mechanized battalions, especially during the initial entry into the city and in breaching obstacles thereafter. The initial MNFW plan had called for the mechanized battalions simply to cordon the city, but as their value became apparent, the Army units played a key role in clearing the city. The importance of heavy forces in urban environments was an unexpected lesson that was validated repeatedly throughout the war. In other areas, the coalition's approaches had not worked as well. While Iraqi troops fared better in November than they had in the First Battle of Fallujah, when many had refused even to deploy to the city, their combat contributions in Operation Al-Fajr were once again not as significant as coalition leaders had hoped. With the exception of the 36th Commando Battalion that cleared insurgent strongpoints in mosques and assaulted high-value targets, the remainder of the Iraqi units were used in supporting activities, such as following behind the American units to conduct searches and process detainees. Though MNFI hailed the Iraqi troops' contribution, Natansky judged after the battle that the Iraqi units were far from standing on their own. Quote, they had no means to communicate from a battalion to a brigade or from a battalion down to a company in any distance. Their vehicles, although the units that came down to Fallujah had trucks with some armoring on it, are ill-equipped. Ultimately, to be successful, as an independent unit, they need to have command and control and be able to exercise as a staff, but they also need combat service support. The Iraqi security forces are dependent on us for food and water, ammunition and supplies, and even health care. 
Finally, when put to the test, the practice of using a, quote, working operational reserve, end quote, had simply amounted to creating a risky gap in one area of operations to fill a hole in another. MNCI's after-action review of the Najaf battle noted that, quote, the concept of a working reserve does not provide for rapid deployment. The operational reserve can deploy faster than 96 hours if it is not committed to missions, but this adds risk to the stability of Baghdad, end quote. This was a lesson that was repeatedly relearned over the next two years as working operational reserves were called on to support emergencies, leaving the terrain that they normally covered at risk. The fall 2004 operations in Najaf, Samara, and Fallujah cleared Shia and Sunni militants from the major insurgent sanctuaries that had threatened to derail the critical January 2005 elections. By December 2004, coalition leaders were generally confident that the impending voting could take place, an issue that had been in serious doubt when Casey took command the previous summer. Coalition troops had shown that even the best-entrenched insurgent groups could not hold terrain in the face of a concerted coalition offensive, and that the coalition commanders had greatly improved the integration of the most effective Iraqi security forces units into coalition operations. MNFI had shown it could blunt insurgent propaganda and had managed to build a partnership with Iraqi political leaders in vital security decision-making. Together, these factors exorcised some of the demons of April 2004. Even so, the battles against the insurgent cities had been incomplete and, quote, the fight to the elections, end quote, had highlighted some of the coalition's military limits. Muqtada Sadr and his forces had lived to fight another day, while the Sunni insurgency, sensing the coming blow on Fallujah, had been able to shift its forces operationally and overrun Mosul, arguably Iraq's most important Sunni city. The battle in Fallujah had revealed that the coalition's combat power was spread thin, with no buffer and no real operational reserve. It would now be in the hands of Iraqi voters and political parties to determine whether the fall's costly fighting could be parlayed into lasting stability. End of Chapter 14, Part 2 Fighting to the Elections August to December 2004 Read by Adam Cable, Milwaukee, Wisconsin, 2021